Let me open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to be together for worship. The freedom we have to gather, the place we have to gather, the opportunity to be led in hymns and scriptures and praise, the opportunity to take the supper together and to be able to be here to hear your word. And so we pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to understand, and lives to live in obedience. Lord, you tell us that if we love you, we will obey your commandments. And we ask this morning as we look at Ephesians 4 that you would guide us, that you would feed us, and that you would use us for kingdom good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you want to look, you want to turn in your Bibles, I'm going to be preaching from Ephesians chapter 4. Um, but as an introduction, before I start and read the passage, I want to set the context for why I chose this passage to preach today, um, in spite of the fact that it was a sermon I've already preached, um, and notice was short. Um, I think this is a really appropriate passage for us as we look at how the church is to function in our settings, specifically this week, as so many tumultuous events are taking place. And so I want, I want us to think for a moment about the fact that we find ourselves in a culture where more and more we either do not speak, we do not speak truthfully, or we do not speak lovingly. Um, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus to encourage them in their purpose, which is to grow in Christ-likeness. We can't do what we are becoming, which is silent and distant. So let me read Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints... For the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul's talking about the purpose of the church. And it doesn't mean purpose in the sense of what the church is to accomplish, but purpose also in the sense of who the church is to be. We are called to Christ-likeness, but not Christ-likeness in an individual capacity where we sort of just like all sorts of molecules bouncing off of everything, move around and randomly interact. We're body. We are called to Christ-likeness as the body of Christ. He gives gifts. In this passage, he talks about the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. 
and the saints. Now, I want to make clear that there are offices of apostle, there are offices of prophet, there are offices of evangelist, there are offices of teacher and shepherd, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the gifts that God gives. We're talking about the opportunities we have to use those gifts for the unity of the body and our maturity in Christlikeness. And so when we talk about speaking the truth in love, it is by no means given to those who are in office to do this. It's the body. The church as the body is to grow in unity of faith. It is to grow in our knowledge of Christ. And I want us to think about this in the sense of redemptive. It is a redemptive calling. And so we are to be redemptive for each other. This is spoken to the members of the body, but but we are also called to be redemptive for those who are outside. We are called to be redemptive for the other, those who are different. It's difficult enough to speak the truth in love to one another, but it is outright dangerous to speak the truth in love to the other. I want to take a moment and look at some passages that talk about this truth in other places. I'm not going to read them, but I want to refer to them. And so one of the passages that speaks about this redemptive, caregiving love is Luke 10. Beginning in verse 25, when Jesus is answering the scribe's question, what must I do to be saved? The scribe has come, he set up a test, and Jesus says to him, well, what did the scriptures say? And he says, well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, well, go do that. And the scribe, trying to justify himself, well, says, who who is my neighbor? And you know the story that follows. Jesus talks about the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. And at the end of that story, he asks the scribe, who was the victim's neighbor? And choking out the words, the scribe says, I suppose the one who saved him. The Samaritan. The other. What did the Samaritan do? He saw the man. He didn't see a Jew whom he hated. He didn't see somebody he wanted to have God rain down his curses upon. He didn't see someone who he condemned. He saw a man who was wounded and stopped and dropped everything and cared for him. It's a challenge to us, the church, because it was the priest and the Levite who abandoned this man. This is a redemptive calling for us to not only speak the truth, because in in the Greek, there is no verb speak. It actually says, truthing in love. It is not only what we say, it is who we are and what we do. The Samaritan truthed. He didn't see an enemy. 
He didn't see someone who had justly been condemned and beaten and left for dead. He saw an image bearer, which is exactly what we're called to see. It's exactly who we're called to see. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. Two are better than one, for they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who is alone and does not have another who will lift them up. How particularly appropriate as we think about the Samaritan. There was somebody to be lifted up. The priest didn't. And so... Realistically, that poor man was alone. The Levite didn't, but the Samaritan did. The other. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness, truthing in love, looking to yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. We are called to live lives that are expressions of truth. Luke 7. It's a passage that I speak frequently. Jesus is quoted by Luke As Luke says, a good tree is known by its fruit, a bad tree is known by its fruit. You don't pick grapes from brambles, you don't pick figs from thorns. The good man out of the good treasure stored up in his heart brings forth good, an evil man out of his evil brings forth evil. Out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you want to know the status of your heart, look at your behavior. What do you do? Are you more like the priest than the Levite, or are you more like the Samaritan? Do you keep a clear distinction between us and others? Or in spite of the differences, and there are many, in spite of the different positions, viewpoints, beliefs, actions, and lifestyles, do you see image bearers? Do you see people created in the image of God whom he loves? Wandering, certainly. Sinning, undoubtedly. But image bearers. So what do these passages call us to be and to do? There's three things. We're called to truth. Not speaking, but truth. Truthing in love. We're called to loving. And we're called to that combination of the true, which is respecting. It's incredibly hard. There's a lot of reasons not to do this. But let's look at them separately. Truthing means engagement. I am created for community. If I'm going to live honest to my creation, if I'm going to live honest to my calling, I cannot isolate. Let that sink in for a moment. You are created in the image of God for community. Let us make man in our image. You can't be alone. You can't withdraw. You can't isolate. 
If you withdraw, which is that non-truthing silence, the fundamental message of your heart, the fundamental message of your heart is you don't matter. I will not hurt to be in your presence. My freedom from pain is more important. My freedom from risk is more important than you are. You're on your own, babe. That is the priest. That is the Levite. So what does truthing look like? Engagement. Paying attention. Seeing the image bearer who is your brother and sister and who is the other. You have a calling. It's a calling that God has given you and you cannot escape. So what are some ways in engagement and in communication that we can do this well? One of the things that I work with in the counseling that I do is trying to help people understand the distinction between an I message and a you message. And you may think that I messages are selfish. It's talking about me. It's focusing on my issues. It's focusing on my views. No. It is giving the gift of myself and my interactions with you to you. It's vulnerability. It's honesty. It's truth. It's humble. iMessages can be oppressive if I'm demanding and if I'm telling you who you have to be, I want you to do this. I want you to do that. You have to be this. I won't accept you unless. But iMessages properly given are humble. This is who I am. This is what I see. This is what I experience. And questions. Am I misunderstanding you? Is this honestly what you're saying to me? Is this honestly who you are? How do I relate to you? I'm giving you what you can't know apart from the gift, me. Think about the people with whom you interact. Think about the assumptions that you make in those interactions. Think about the way that those assumptions characterize you. Then step back for a moment. What if you communicated what you observe and then ask, is that true? How do you think of the other? You define which other you want to address, but how do you think of that other and what assumptions do you make? What self-protections do you create? What distance do you experience? What community is broken? And then think about what it would look like to engage. Because you are salt and light. You are the kingdom message. You are the one who might bring that person to Jesus. Questions. One of the difficult things about a question is if I ask a question, I'm making a promise. I'm making a promise to listen. 
I will give you the value of listening to your answer. And then I may engage and interact with the differences that come up. Time out. What about? How do we? But it's engagement and truthing. So let me move on to love. As I was thinking about this this morning, one of the things that I I know that we deal with is communicating love without truth. We call it comfort. I think biblically, if you want to understand what love is, love is always redemptive. We talked about that word a moment ago. It is building, challenging, stretching, healing. Dealing with real problems that exist. Helping people to become more than they are in themselves. Truthing. But it's also comfort. In our culture, we've come practically to an experience where if I am going to say that I love you, what I am committed to do in our culture's understanding is to make you feel good. Our culture expects comfort without truth. Biblically, redemptive is truth and love together in that wonderful overlap. Comfort without love is hospice. It is giving freedom from pain and allowing death to take its course. It is a statement of apathy and selfishness because I'm not willing to take the risk of differing with you and having to work through the difficulties of keeping a relationship where we disagree. I'm not willing to take the risk to help you to see something you might not see on your own, however important that is. Brothers and sisters, that is about as intelligent as taking a patient into surgery, giving them anesthesia, and skipping the surgery. You give them the freedom from the pain, but you do nothing to heal the damage and the disease. It is not loving. It is abandonment. It is not respect. It is apathy. It is selfishness. So why do I not truth and love and respect? In this passage, we see that it says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. What Paul says keeps us from speaking the truth in love is immaturity. In that immaturity, quite often I find that I focus on myself. I don't want the conflict. I don't want the difficulty. I don't want the suffering that will come when I tell you I believe you're wrong. Fear. I'm just not sure that it's worth the cost to speak the truth. Selfishness. I'd rather have my peace. Pain, well, of course it's going to hurt. 
We're dealing with something destructive. Sometimes it comes from a lack of awareness and a lack of paying attention. I don't even know that you have this issue. I haven't listened. I haven't cared. But I'm going to say something that's going to sting. Because fundamentally, all of the reasons I've just described that keep us from truthing in love is a lack of experiencing the truth of the gospel. It is my immaturity. It is my failure to understand the work of Christ. It is my failure to understand the need to grow in Christ-likeness, both of my own, because if I grow in my Christ-likeness, I will truth in love. But it's also a callousness towards the other where I don't know the needs that they have. Paul gives us the answer for what equips us. Paul gives us the answer for how do we truth in love. And that is the redemptive work that Jesus has already done. Jesus has saved me. Jesus has provided a salvation for all who will come to faith, but as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to belong as children of God. John 1, 12. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. When I live in the reality of the gospel... When I, in that understanding of the gospel, see the other as an image bearer who has incredible, inestimable value for whom Jesus has died, their rebellion is an expression of need, not a threat. They need Jesus. They need to see what they can experience as a member of the body of Christ. They are redeemable, certainly not by my persuasive capacity, certainly not by my oppression, which honestly is what the church has done for so long. You fit our mold, at least externally, or you suffer the consequences. Our culture has gotten to the point now where we don't have that power to oppress. We can't exert power to compel external behavior. It is an issue of the heart, which it always has been. But we as the body of Christ have a calling that is necessary and unavoidable to pursue image bearers' hearts, not to control their behavior, not to make them fit, not to make us comfortable with how they live, but to pursue their hearts, to help them to see their irrevocable need for Christ. As we delight in the reality of the gospel, perfect love casts out fear. It becomes an issue of love, wisdom, and comfort. But silence is not 
possibility. Engagement must take place. So what do we do? I think we do two things. Number one, we pray for God to give us that profound understanding of the gospel and wisdom to know where and how to engage, how to live truthfully and lovingly in the presence of those around us, certainly within the context of the body, but beyond. Secondly, I think we repent. Psalm, 23, Psalm 123, or 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is a hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We ask God for wisdom and we ask God for forgiveness for what we haven't done. And then we follow. We believe the truth of the gospel. And we live in light of that belief. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we have to confess that it is way too easy for us to live as the priest and the Levite did in Jesus' parable. It is uncomfortable to think about engagement. As we think about those whom we love and are fearful for, it's so much easier to live in peaceful coexistence. As we think of those that we don't know, it's so much easier not to care. And Lord, as we look at the realities of what's happening in our country this week, it is so easy to condemn and reject and despise the other. But they are image bearers. They are people you have created with your image. They have a value we cannot reject. Even in the midst of attack, in the midst of trial, Lord, you created these image bearers. And I pray that we would be compassionate, that we would recognize their value, and that we would speak with truth and gentleness, with compassion. As you say in Galatians 6, if one's caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Lord, please give us a heart that is so in tune with the gospel that our desire is to see these people come to Jesus, to see them whole, to see them redeemed. I pray, Lord, that we would recognize what steps it will take for us to be engaged in their lives and what we can do to be both truthful and loving. It's a big job. It's a job that is frightening. But I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us deep faith, that you would put your spirit in us and move us to follow your commands and obey your decrees that you would give us a deep love for Jesus that casts out fear because we have been saved. We are saved. We will be saved. We have a home that cannot be taken. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make us 
more than we are in our own. As we come to the table, Lord, I pray that you would feed us in a special way this morning, that we would recognize your presence, your love, and your calling. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.